Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Chapter 2, starting at the 16th verse. So if you have a Bible, um, then uh, you can turn there. And of course, uh, those scriptures will be on uh, the screen as well. Um, Let me say, um, who is this? Who wrote this? What is this book of the Bible? Um, It's written by uh, a man named Paul. Um, Now, Paul is not one of the disciples of Jesus originally. He didn't spend three years running around with Jesus like, uh, like the others did. In fact, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a part of the very group that sought to Jesus' execution. Isn't that fascinating? And Paul um, actually hated Jesus and hated um, Christianity, thought it was completely illegitimate. And uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul sets out to actually destroy um, the church. And then the most amazing thing happens. Uh, Paul is converted. And Paul becomes the writer of a great deal of the New Testament. Paul goes out uh, to uh, the Gentile areas in particular, and everywhere he goes, he starts new churches, and then he tends to those churches. He, he writes letters to them. He encourages them. He builds them up. When he writes this, this church in Colossae, there's a place Paul never went to. It's a brand new church. It's a small church, and uh, Paul's concerned for their well-being. And so from prison in Rome... Why is Paul in prison in Rome? What's going to happen to Paul in Rome? He's going to have his head cut off is what's going to happen. You can go there today. You can go to the St. Paul's Church outside the gates. They took him outside the gates of the city. They executed him as did the Romans. Uh, But before that happened, he wrote what we're about to read from Colossians. So I'm I'm told of this um, thing that happens in Krakow, Poland. How many of you have been to Krakow, Poland? How many? Okay. Okay, good. Just a few. Some of you? All right. Dude, front row. Good. Um, uh, there is a, um, something that happens there every day, uh, and it has for 700 years. Uh, it happens at the break of dawn. It happens uh, at the end of the day. A, a bugler emerges um, uh, in the, the steeple of St. Mary's um, Church, and uh, a window opens, and the bugler sounds um, his bugle. 700 years they've been doing that. And one thing that's odd about it is it, it's sort of this, you know, triumphant um, uh, martial sound from the bugler. And then all of a sudden it just abruptly stops. It just dies away. And it's sort of bizarre until you hear the story. You see, it all started 700 years ago when a bugler ascended that steeple to warn the city because the Tartars, the, the uh, a Muslim horde were um, coming into the city, and he went up there to warn the city to rise up and defend um, the city, and in the middle of his playing, he was struck by an arrow, and he was killed. And so for 700 years since, uh, they continue this tradition to remember his bravery, his warning. Well, it's 2,000 years now. Paul's been sounding a warning, and we're about to read it. It's a warning to the church. Don't add anything to the gospel. You ready? So why don't you stand if you're able. 
We've been studying as pastors through this, this little power-packed book, this letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. He says to the Christians in Colossae, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Who would that be? Who, who, who believes in a Sabbath? Where did that come from? So these would be Jewish people that were probably converts to Christianity, right, that he's speaking of there. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Now, would that be Jewish people? People of Jewish heritage? Do they worship angels? No. No. So these would be Greek. Um, these would be pagan converts. So all these people are, are converts. They're in the church, um, in this Christian church. And Paul says, um, don't let anyone disqualify you with this asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Now, if with Christ, he says, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. In other words, Paul's saying people are coming into the church and they're trying to impose their man-made religion. And he says in the last line, but all these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. God, would you help us? Sometimes when we read your word and we read what... Um, um, your uh, prophets and apostles wrote to uh, issues in the church 2,000 years ago. We don't even know what they're talking about. So, Lord, will you help us to understand this and to apply it um, in our day so that um, we can heed the warning of, uh, of the Apostle Paul. We can hear the founder of the Christian church sitting in a cell before his execution in Rome writing to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I got a question for you this day. If you're a Christian, and every week we have many people who aren't, they're not there yet, um, but if you're a Christian, if you're, if you're a, a follower of Jesus, here's the question. Has your becoming a Christian proved to be liberating for you? Has it filled you with more joy, more security, you know, in a sense that the pressure is off, I can relax? Or has your becoming a Christian made you more tired and more exhausted by all the duty Christianity seems to entail? Got to go to church, got to go to small group, got to actually practice hospitality, that means I'd have to clean my house. Got to, um, 
Got to get money, got to get the kids uh, to Jesus. You know, I got to disciple my own kids. I got to care about people in other countries and world missions. I got to love the poor. I've got to control my tongue. Uh, that means less gossip. Now, more just rattling off and saying whatever comes to mind. And I have to rein in my spending. So, is your faith life-giving or is it exhausting? Which is it? Well, um, you know something fascinating as a pastor. I've been a pastor here for 40 years. Many people through the years have told me that the best thing that ever happened to them was when their parents became Christians. A lot of them said my you know, dad was an alcoholic or my dad was gone all the time or whatever. My parents' marriage was a disaster. And, and there was a decided change in my home when my parents became a Christian that, that definitely made our, our home healthier. But I can tell you that many, many, many people have also told me through the years that the worst thing that ever happened to me was when my parents became Christians. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me. Now, why, why would they say that? Because my parents, uh, these parents didn't believe um, that Jesus' grace was enough, right? Um, their conversion to Christianity launched their parents on a crusade to make obedient, compliant, rule-keeping Christian children. Jesus' grace wasn't enough to make them pleasing to God. They also had to be great parents, and they had to produce great Christian children. So as one man said to me, when I got caught lying by my parents or, or, or maybe going out, you know, sneaking out of the house when I wasn't supposed to, my dad beat the hell out of me. Now the truth is, he didn't accomplish beating the hell out of him. If anything, he accomplished the exact opposite, right? He gave a picture of God that only, um, um, only ruined um, uh, uh, drawing one uh, into relationship um, with Jesus. Many people have told me that uh, my parents' conversion made our home a harsher, less loving, more legalistic place. Um, so in this passage, Paul sounds the bugle of warning. Don't add to Jesus' grace because you'll destroy it if you do. Ready to go there? Just two points. You want grace, there's grace. Two points, right? So here's the first point. This gospel joy, Paul's writing to the Colossian church, you've got gospel joy, but people are coming in and they're trying to steal it. So gospel joy can be hijacked. That's the first um, point. Christians who are young in the faith in Colossae are being unsettled by newcomers who are insisting that, that faith alone and Christ alone is not enough to be right with God. In other words, what Jesus did... Um, if that makes us right with God, well, guess what? There's other stuff you've got to do or God's not really pleased with you, right? It's not just what Jesus did, but now it's got to change your life and you've got to adopt a set of practices. And if you don't, then you're probably not really uh, a follower of God and you're probably not really a Christian. Real Christians must put their faith in Jesus is what they would have said, mm, but they must also adopt certain practices to prove that they're really worthy of Jesus' love, to prove that they really possess Jesus' love. Uh, whatever it is, it's not Jesus alone. It's Jesus plus, right? They were adding on, right? 
Grace isn't enough. They were adding on. And if you add on to grace, then there's no grace at all. Grace is nullified, right? But they were adding on. Don't you hate add-ons, right? You go to the car dealer. You, maybe you're trying to buy a used car. You negotiate a price, $20,000 you're going to have to pay for this used car. You can't believe how much you're going to have to pay. And then you agree to it. And then they see the, the invoice they hand you, and it's like $29,000. Wait, $20,000. And then you read all the add-ons, right? You know, the dealer prep charge. I don't want you to prep it. I'll prep it myself, you know. Um, I remember going to a local car dealership to buy a key. A key. The key was more than $100. I immediately opened a key business. It was a key. And when I got the key and I looked at the price of the key, $100, whatever, it was $120 for a key. And I noticed it had an itemization of the price and it said like $15 for shop supplies. You polish the key? I mean, what? don't add on. I don't want add-ons, right? Same with the hotel. You see your hotel bill, you, you know what the price of the hotel is, and then there's parking, and then there's like $27.95 for the what? The resort fee. It's a Hampton Inn, right? <laughs> I should get a deduction for the last, I mean, I get a towel. That's $27.95. Who likes add-ons? We don't like add-ons. Paul didn't like add-ons, these hijackers who are adding on to grace were, some of them were Jewish converts, right? That's what it says in verse 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festivals, new moons, Sabbath days. These were shadows of, these were shadows. These were things before Jesus to point to Jesus. Someone was going to come who would fulfill all that. Uh, but now that Jesus has come, these things are nullified, right? Um, they had, the, the Jews had all sorts of dietary laws, and they had all sorts of special days. Jesus came and fulfilled all this. You are not under these obligations, right? You see what was happening? Jews who had this in their culture became Christians, and they were bringing into the church. To be a Christian, you've got to do this, 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 and this. Well, also, there were... Greek and pagan practices being pressed on the new Christians. Um, notice one, it says in, in verse 18, asceticism, right? Asceticism, that is radical self-denial. Even the mutilating of the body is a practice of devotion. After all, the Bible says if your right hand causes you to sin, then what? Well, not literally cut it off, but this was kind of the emphasis of people that if we were going to follow the suffering Christ, and we had to suffer too, in fact, we had to inflict suffering on ourselves, live with a, uh, a way of self-denial to sort of prove that you were a sufferer too. You belong to Jesus. You were forswearing um, love in this world. My wife and I were in Assisi once, uh, where, of course, St. Francis uh, came from, and and you learn about uh, a man that, that's uh, very admirable in so many ways, but you read about the way he would torment his own body, that he would uh, sleep in a cell naked on a bare floor um, in the cell. His uh, clothing would only be the roughest sort of burlap, scratchy kind of um, clothing. He was very naked, you know, to uh, unclothed, I mean, uh, to, to the sense I have nothing in this world. I have no possessions in this world. I have no pleasures in this 
um, world. And this was considered, oh, what devotion. What a great um, thing. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Don't add on. Um, We know that Paul was a what? Pharisee. Paul came right out of um, legalism, didn't he? Isn't it interesting that um, Jesus and the Pharisees would have believed so many of the same things? The Pharisees believed in resurrection. The Pharisees believed in all sorts of things that Jesus believed in. But the Pharisees, you know, they took the Ten Commandments. The Bible had Ten Commandments. The Pharisees turned that into 613 rules, the Ten. The Sabbath was for our rest. God gave us the Sabbath to rest. It was a day for us. It was a day of good. But they turned it into 39 restrictions. You couldn't write on the Sabbath. You couldn't cook. You couldn't wash. You couldn't plant. You couldn't even spit. Do you know why? Because from something you'd been eating, there might have been a little seed still in your mouth. And, uh, and if you spit and that seed went out with your saliva and it hit the ground and it hit the soil that was fertile with the seed there and the watering of your um, um, spit, then, uh, then a plant might spring up and then you had been planting and cultivating on the Sabbath day. So, b- by the way, we don't spit in here either, uh, just as an aside. Rules, rules. Jesus called the Pharisees vipers, fools, hypocrites, blind guides. Jesus knew the toxic threat of man-made religion. Adding on, adding on, adding on. Why does man do this? Listen, Paul knew it too. Paul says, why do you submit to these regulations? Look at what it says in verse 21. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I think some people certainly think that that to become a Christian would be to swear off anything that's actually fun, right? Um, Paul says, don't do this. Don't let people add to faith alone in Christ alone. Don't let people judge you. Don't let people disqualify you. You got it? So let's say a few words about legalism. Have I made it clear? What is legalism? It is trying to secure a right relationship with God, God's favor, through your performance, through your obedience. You got that? Through legal, keeping the law. If somehow you keep the laws of God and requirements of God in such a way that God will be happier with you, that you'll truly be one of his children and you can be secure about that, but the truth is legalism is soul-crushing. It's Mother's Day. Imagine anyone, imagine a parent saying to their child, my affection for you rests on what? Your obedience. You earn it. It's not going to be freely granted, and your behavior can forfeit my affection for you. This is what's called warping a child, right? Warping an individual, Legalism. And legalism is common. It's common in so many forms. I mean, there's people who say, to be a real Christian, you can't read Harry Potter. Um, you know, it used to be you can't dance or drink or go to movies, right? Um, today it can be you can't have a, uh, you know, a Jesus storybook Bible because there's 
drawings of Jesus in there, and that would be a violation of the second commandment against making graven images, right? You can't, uh, you know, in the, in the history of the church, you can't have long hair um, or facial hair. When I was in graduate school, uh, we had the chance to go out into the countryside and preach in little churches on the weekend, and you could sign up um, to do that, and you get practice preaching. But I noticed on, on, the, on some churches there would be certain restrictions, like don't sign up to come to this certain country church. Don't bother signing up if you have facial hair. Because we don't want anybody with facial hair in our church. I wonder what would happen if Jesus had visited. Or any of the apostles. Olive would have had long hair. Olive would, who would have had facial hair. I love uh, um, Philip Yancey writes about Moody Bible Institute where uh, there was a restriction against having long hair or facial hair, how every day the students would march to their class under uh, this portrait of their uh, founder, D.L. Moody himself. Uh, Didn't somebody stop at some point and say, I don't get this, right? This doesn't even make sense, these, uh, these rules that we come up with. With. There's, there's legalism that can, can creep into anything, right? There's parenting legalism. I mean, if you don't have a natural birth, fine, damage your own child. You know, um, feeding schedules, the way it's got to be done, and um, how much you should hold your child or let them cry in the crib um, and cry it out. Now, I remember when we had babies, cloth diapers. I mean, those were the real parents, cloth diapers. They were also the ones too cheap to buy um, Diapers. So, um, legalism, uh, gosh, breastfeeding, you know, you're not going to breastfeed? What kind of evil mother are you? Um, there's, um, there's, there's legalism at every turn. What about behavioral legalism? Think of uh, how smoking has turned. So some people would say, anybody who smokes, I mean, honestly, it's a sin. Honestly, you're, you're, um, you're doing, um, I don't even see how you could call yourself a Christian. It might be good for you to know that uh, uh, Spurgeon Great Baptist preacher in England smoked. So did Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, so did G.K. Chesterton. So did C.S. Lewis. So did J. Gresham Machen. So did R.C. Sproul and Chuck Colson and Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham. They all smoked. Maybe that's maybe you're smoldering right now at just the mention of that. Um, there's church legalism, right? I mean, if you bring your Bible, you're the real thing. You're less of a Christian if you read the screen. Um, and by the way, you don't get any points for bringing your Bible unless it's a King James version. Um, old hymns are better than, uh, new worship music. Um, you know, you should dress a certain way. It's God's house. If you're going to God's house, you wear your best. Um, uh, in some churches, um, you must raise your hands and be wildly expressive or you're not really open to the Holy Spirit. In other churches, if you raise your hands, you're just being drawing attention to yourself. Um, um, and certainly real Christians come to church on time. <laughs> Two-thirds of you should quake for your salvation. <laughs> you could just never keep all the rules, right? So one time we had a, one of our student uh, leaders, a woman, she took some girls to a Saturday, a day at the beach. I think maybe they went down to Bradenton, some of the 
high school girls in our church, and uh, they were coming back the same day. But as I recall, some a girl got stung by like a, a jellyfish or something, had a reaction to it, and and uh, they got just to make sure they went to an emergency room, make sure that this wasn't going to develop. Anyway, you know, the emergency room took forever. They ended up there till till all night long. They were there all night long. So Sunday morning, they actually, they, you know, they informed the parents. The parents knew where they were. They were safe. They were always good. Um, and they got in the car, and they headed back to Citrus County, and they're pulling into our county right at about 10 o'clock, right when church at Seven Rivers is started. Now, they didn't, they dressed to go to the beach, and they had been at the beach, and they had been uh, up all night, and they had, um, so they didn't have church clothes, and they, uh, and they didn't get a shower, they didn't get anything like that done, and, uh, and so one of the kids says, uh, why don't we go to church? And the others looked at him like, you're crazy. They said, no, why don't we go to church? Who cares? Well, as they discovered, a lot of people did. Um, <laughs> And um, she said, she was, I remember her telling our staff, it was just kind of uh, insightful to her. It was a church person and, and, uh, and a Christian. She said, the looks we got when we walked into church. If looks could kill, like what are you doing here? What kind of disdain for God are you showing by showing up at church looking like that? When the truth was what? These were teenage girls who said, we didn't even sleep last night. We don't even have a shower. We don't have any makeup on. We didn't put on decent clothes, but we want to go and worship Jesus. The exact opposite of what people's eyes uh, and their judgmental spirit was telling them was taking place, right? Teenagers who said, who cares? We want Jesus. And they got nothing but what? Looks of disdain. Thankfully, that was a long time ago. We are so much more holy now. Um, legalism um, uh, is blinding, um, too. How many churches had rules about long hair and rock music and dancing, but never said a word about racism? How we can be, we, we almost use our rules and what we're against to mask seeing the real corruption of our hearts. You got it? Legalism. Let's say this too. Legalism is dangerously attractive. Um, we don't like grace because it undermines our efforts to justify ourselves. I mean, we, want, we so badly want to contribute to our salvation. We so badly want to consider ourselves better than other people constantly comparing ourselves to other people. So we don't like this idea that we're saved by grace and grace alone, we contribute nothing. Yeah, but I contribute all this money to the key center and to the poor and to feed the hungry. I'm really a charitable person. Surely that counts for something. And I'm faithful to my spouse, right? And I'm a good dad and I'm a good mom. Surely that counts for something. I'm better than most people. Doesn't move the needle at all. It's Jesus plus nothing. Right? So we like legalism. We like having things that we do that other people don't do that marks us out as being superior to other people. Grace demands that we own our complete brokenness. Jesus gets all the credit. When anybody joins this church, the first question they have to respond positively to is Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save in his sovereign? Mercy. You got nothing. 
You have to confess, I bring nothing. Any credit I have with God has only been given to me, accomplished by Jesus. We actually find legalism attractive. Third thing, legalism destroys the beauty of Jesus' church. Um, Broken people are only going to come where it's safe to be broken, like Alcoholics Anonymous, right? When you go to Alcoholics Anonymous and they say, hi, my name is, you know, John, I'm an alcoholic, they go around the room. They can't come to you and say, my name is Ray, and I'm not like any of you. I've never struggled. I don't have any problems like you have. Uh, I don't know if they throw you out the window or not, um, you know, but clearly that's not the ethos of the group, is it? It's a meeting of the broken. You know, when the prodigal son came home, Jesus didn't say to him what? You got a lot of chutzpah coming back after what you did. What you did. Why don't you? Why don't you go clean yourself back up, and we'll have a conversation. Why don't you go away and and uh, um, why don't you go away and make a little money and straighten your life out? That's not the way it worked, did it? He welcomed him, right? He welcomed him. Many scholars have said when the Pharisees heard Jesus tell that story of of God's, the, the, the father welcoming the prodigal that way, they would have torn their garments. It would have made them so angry, that picture of God. When um, Jesus met the woman at the well, remember the Samaritan woman? He said to her, you, you have had five husbands and the man you're with now isn't, isn't your husband. So what did he say to her? You might want to go clean that up. That's not what he said. He didn't say you're not worthy. I mean, you're, you, are, you are the most immoral person in your village. He didn't say that. He said, I have water to drink that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. Everything you've been looking for, everything you've been looking for to be full and all these men, the men are never going to satisfy you. But I've got what you need. I can restore you to the relationship with God right now, right here. And she was saved that very day. When the woman caught in adultery was thrown at Jesus' feet, he didn't say, what? You know, you, you made your bed. You know, th- these are the consequences, right? You reap what you sow. Um, no. No, go. Go. Where are your condemners? Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The, the sweet grace of Jesus. The average non-Christian, when they are called to believe in Jesus or invited to church, believe they're being called to a life of rules and regulation. Did you hear that? You ever wonder why people don't, aren't interested in going to church or aren't interested in becoming Christians? Because they think what they're being invited to is a, a life of legalism, a life of harshness, a life of arrogance, a life of pride. They don't think they're being invited to a life of freedom and joy. So a number of uh, years, gosh, 25 years ago, uh, was a key moment in, in my understanding of all this. Because um, I, I, um, I had a um, pastor's class, teaching the pastor's class, and there was a young girl coming to the pastor's class, and she wasn't married, um, uh, she and her boyfriend lived together, and she had like a little one-year-old baby. And uh, back then, I had more time to get to know people in the pastor's class because it was like 12 weeks long. We could weed out who we didn't want. And, um, 
So this, uh, this, this um, young girl, what struck me is she had a joy in Jesus. She loved Jesus, and she knew Jesus loved her. And it just sort of radiated. And when I talked to her, I enjoyed talking to her. Um, and it struck me that what she had, in many ways, I didn't have that. And, uh, and I thought, she's living with her boyfriend, which is not in accord with what God's word said. So if she wants to join this church, she'll probably be told that has to be fixed before she can join the church. So she can't be in the church, but I'm in the church and I'm in worse spiritual shape than she is. And I'm the pastor. And I remember just thinking, something's wrong. Well, something was wrong with me. And uh, that was a changing experience in, in, uh, in my life as we welcomed her into the church and and shortly thereafter, um, God's grace and kindness into marriage to that husband. And, and they've been married uh, ever since for 25 years, still a part of this church. Um, and last thing I want to say is legalism, uh, you know, doesn't work. That's what it says in verse 23, right? Um, these who have an appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Legalism doesn't work. Um, how, how about that? In fact, you know what legalism does? Legalism breeds licentiousness. Rules have no ability over the longing of us uh, to indulge our flesh. They actually inflame that longing. Do you know there's a greater um, studies show that people who grew up in legalistic churches are far more likely to be addicted to pornography and alcohol than those who didn't. Legalism breeds licentiousness. Um, rules can actually entice us sometimes. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was in sixth grade, I started a new school. I still remember the first day of that school, I was nervous. And uh, it was a Christian school, and the teacher told us the rules of the classroom. First day, that's what you do, first day of school, you get the rules. You, you, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you know. Here, here's the rules. Okay, we're all going to get along here. We're a little family in this class. You know, here's the rules. And then I'll never forget what she said when she got done. This is a long time ago. I still remember this keenly. She said, um, now there are things you can't do that I haven't told you, right? Because I can't possibly tell you all the things that you can't do. Um, and then she used an illustration. And this is where she made a cardinal error. She said, see those lights that extend, you know, almost the length of the classroom? There are these big lights that hung down in one long row, and they were kind of connected with these ropes or something up to the ceiling. She said, you see those lights? I didn't say you can't swing on those lights. I haven't thought of everything that you can't do, but, but clearly you can't swing on the lights. And I remember the moment she said that, I thought, this school year will not end. <laughs> Before I have a rip-roaring good swing on those lights and hopefully entice a number of my classmates to join me. If anything rules off and entice, you know. Legalism is utterly ineffective in curbing the desires of the flesh. Think about the promise ring movement. Many of you might remember that. We'll give our teenage daughters a promise ring and they make a commitment to celibacy until marriage. There's no evidence that um, kids who made that promise were um, more sexually chaste than kids who didn't make um, that promise. Let me ask you something. Has a rule requiring abstinence from sexual activity produced a sexually chaste Catholic priesthood? 
It's the doctrine of the church, right? Male priests may not marry. They may not engage in sexual activity. Has that rule produced sexual purity? It doesn't. Legalism doesn't work. It's utterly ineffective. Um, But it is radically effective in producing toxic, joyless, and proud churches and homes. The solution to sin is not more law, it's more Jesus, more grace. Grace is the great antidote to rebellion. It's the great antidote to sin and pride and arrogance is grace. And let's finish with that, the last point. Gospel joy can be hijacked, but how is it secured? Paul says to the young Christians in Colossae, don't let anyone judge you with these man-made rules. Don't let anyone judge you. You know why? Because you have a judge. Let me just say, the basic operating truth of legalistic religion is, if I obey, then I am accepted and loved. The basic operating rule of the gospel is, I am accepted and loved through Jesus' obedience on my behalf. Do you hear the difference? Legalism says, I can't be loved and accepted. I can't be sure of that without my obedience. The gospel says, I can be utterly sure that I am loved and accepted because of Jesus' obedience. We have a judge. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you. You know why? Because we have a judge. His name is God the Father. He's the judge of all things. You could say that we're doomed because he's perfect and he's pure and he's holy. Yeah, but we also have a defense attorney and he's really good. He gets his people off. You know why? Because he says to the judge, everything my clients are accused of is true, but I will stand in the dock in their place. I will bear the consequences for their sins. And that's what he did when he cried out, my God, my God, judge of all the universe. Why have you turned your face away from me? Because Jesus takes the penalty for our transgressions, right? So why aren't you judged? Because you've already been judged. Your sins have been judged in Jesus, right? You have died. In the death of Jesus, you have died. Your sins have been paid for. And not only that, Jesus Perfect obedience causes him to be able to say to the judge, have you looked at the record of this guy that you're charging with all these crimes? When Jesus hands our record to the judge, we we take a peek out of it. We say, "There's, there's no sin on that record because it's Jesus' righteousness that stands as ours. It's given to us freely. This is the gospel. This is the glorious gospel. Jesus came to save us. He came to keep every law of God for us. God will not judge us. We have already been judged. We are free. We are loved. We are adored. We are innocent. We are righteous. We are just. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can add. If the Son has set you free, you are what? free. So someone in my family tells the, the story to a, a relative 
that uh, when she was a little girl, her, um, she longed for her father's approval, particularly because her older sister really seemed to have it. He just seemed like, uh, you know, the, the older sister was the apple of his eye, and she wanted some of that affection, some of that attention. And she noticed something her older sister did to get her father's favor is she would wash his clothes and then hang him up on the line outside. He'd come home from work, and it'd all be dry and fresh and everything, all his shirts. I said, I can do that. So she gathered up her, her father's shirts one day. She was just a little kid, and she washed them all up. But when she went out in the yard, she wasn't tall enough to hang him on the line. So she put one over the back of an old rusty wheelbarrow, and she put one on some old um, moldy lawn chairs that were back there. And just whatever she could find in the yard, she put, put, put a wet, one of his, her dad's wet shirts. And she said when her dad came home, of course, she was all day long she was thinking, he's going he's gonna to be so proud of me. He's going to be so, he's going to be stunned at what I did for him and he was. <laughs> she said he was so harsh, called her stupid, you know, so critical. Don't touch my shirts again. That that it seared her in a way that carried right on through her life. Words. Words don't go away. Words are powerful. And she, she actually was telling um, her counselor as an adult, my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure, the Heavenly Father, by getting the shirts hung upright. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. My entire Christian life had been oppressive. I did not know how to live day by day without an overwhelming sense of failure to perform up to what I thought God demanded. And with that came a sense of God being disappointed and even disgusted with me. So as she, as she told that to this counselor, you know what the counselor, uh, she said to the counselor, I, I, I guess that the grace in the gospel, I guess what that means is that, that, that I should consider that God would look at my, you know, the, the flawed way that I, I, I clean those clothes and, and, and the way that God would treat me is he would, he would, um, he just wouldn't make a big deal out of how I botched those shirts. And he would say, that's okay. I love you. And the counselor looked at her and said, no, I don't think you get it at all. Don't you realize that if God was your father, he would come home and he would see those rusty, dirty, tarnished shirts and he would say, are you kidding? You did the laundry for me? I love you. I love that you wanted to serve me. You wanted to give yourself to try to make my life easier. I think you're the most awesome kid I've ever met in this world. And he would have picked up the, your shirt with all its rust stains and he would have put it on and he would have buttoned it and he would have worn it to work and he would have told everybody at work, my little girl did this for me. You might look at these, uh, this, this rust stain on this shirt, but you know what that rust stain is to me? That's a rust stain of love. Nobody's got a little girl like my little girl. I'm crazy about her. That's your father. Do you know it? You can. Just don't add anything on to that sweet love. Amen. Let's pray.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Thank you.